Doubting Thomas. This is one of my favorite stories, despite the fact that for years it seems the church has ignored the the major premise of it, which is, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The church has spent so much time and energy, at least here in the West over the last 75 years or so, trying to prove that the resurrection of Christ actually happened, that you think the text actually said, blessed are those who have seen. We insist on engaging the world in a way that neither Jesus nor the disciples did. We work diligently to give the world hands and feet with nail scars in them and a wounded side for people to place their fingers in. We have written volumes, volumes trying to show that there is evidence of the resurrection. Evidence that one author says demands a verdict. But what we end up doing is inadvertently asking people to lay aside their right to believe without seeing and receive the blessing that comes with that. We ask them to make a mere mental assent to an historical fact. We have replaced faith with certainty and banished doubt as if it was the enemy of faith. And for those of you who might be here this morning who have substantial doubt about the Christian story, those who may have doubt about the very existence of God, those who maybe can't completely shake the feeling that there is another world than ours, but you also can't shake the doubts. For those of you who see the horrors of this world, maybe in your own life, or the life of your loved ones, or on the news every day, and you simply can't believe in God, or that if there is a God, he can't possibly be good. Those of you who want to really believe this, but just have too many questions. Those of you who maybe have been cast aside by church because of your questions and your doubts. For all of you, and I mean this sincerely, I want to apologize. I want to apologize for a church that made certainty the holy grail, for religion that despises doubts and questions. I want to apologize for Christians that have not tolerated your doubt, and for readings of scripture that have ignored the very essence of the story. Doubt and questions are as consistent on the pages of the Bible as our faith and certainty. You see, God is not the one bothered by doubts and questions. It's only we Christians who are afraid of our own doubts and questions that are bothered. You can explore any of the great philosophers who argue against God. The older ones, Voltaire, Russell, Sartre, Hume, or the modern ones, especially the big four, Harris, Dawkins, Dennett, Hitchens, Read their arguments, and you will not find in any of their arguments what you can't already find in the Bible. They're all there. Job, Psalms, Lamentations, and other places in the Bible all raise serious arguments against the existence of God and are filled with doubts and questions. Like Philip Yancey said, I have respect for a God who not only gives us the freedom to reject him, 
but also includes the arguments we can use in the Bible itself. God seems rather doubt-tolerant, actually. I'm sorry the church hasn't always come across that way. And when we read St. Matthew's account of the resurrection and what happened next, we find this fascinating detail. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. These are the guys that saw him and the women that saw him and touched him and ate with him, and they still doubted. Worshipped with their doubt. Isn't that beautiful? There's a fabulous paradigm for what church and faith should look like, I think. And all Jesus said to these doubters was, hey, here's the keys to the kingdom. Go and make disciples of all people. Jesus obviously knew that being a disciple is naturally going to include doubt. And that is why I love this story of Thomas so much. But it is challenging. It's a challenging story, mostly because we want it to be black and white. We want doubting Thomas to be bad Thomas and certain Thomas to be good Thomas. But I don't think that is what this scene is all about. I don't think bad doubting Thomas was bad, nor do I think certain Thomas was good. And I don't even think Thomas's grand confession of my Lord and my God was necessarily all a result of seeing the risen body of Christ. I don't think that. I used to. But see, I think it was seeing the reality of grace that the cross and resurrection ultimately revealed. You see, when Christ came to Thomas, in order to show him his wounds, he had to open his arms wide. This is the universal symbol of acceptance, of welcome, of friendship, of love. And so when he came to Thomas and he opens his arm wide without anger, without judgment, without bitterness at the fact that Thomas was doubting, or even more, at the fact that Thomas had run away and left him during his darkest moment. In many ways, I think that's what was going on with Thomas. They started to tell him Jesus was risen, and he started to think, oh man, if that's true and I have to see him, he is going to be furious at me. I ran away. I left him. But in that fear of judgment, Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, I love you, and I always have. And in the face of that pure love, Thomas believed what we are all invited to believe, that God loves us as we are, not as we should be. And that's why I think the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are so important. Not because an empty tomb is the closing argument on a spectacular defense that wins the case and proves the unprovable. That's not what Easter means to me. But because the Christ event is the very revelation of the mystery that Jesus calls the good news. That from the very foundations of the world, God has loved us. And even though we have not loved him back, and even though we have often run the other way, and even though when he came among us as one of us, we not only rejected him, we killed him too. He still loves us. The Christ event reveals that all in the same instant, we are judged, understood, 
forgiven, and welcomed back into intimate relationship with God. All at the same instant. That's what we just celebrated at communion. This is why the communion table is the most beautiful place we can be. Because to come to communion is to acknowledge I need grace. Acknowledge I need forgiveness and to receive it in the same moment. Knowing it's okay. That's good news. And that's what Easter's all about. Not proving some act that happened 2,000 years ago, but proving that from the beginning of time, God's one intention for us has been to love us and to give us life. Through the mystery of offering his own life. God never intended to stop loving us no matter what we did, what we do, or what we will do. Easter is God's declaration that the, to the world that he is faithful. That his righteousness is so pure, he cannot be anything but faithful to us. He can't. That's what separates God from all of us. And if you have been faithful to those you love from the time you were born, I want to meet you and shake your hand. I haven't. That's what makes God God. And when we turn him into one of us, shame on us for making him human. And I think this is why St. Paul and all the disciples did not spend their time trying to prove the resurrection. They simply said it happened. They said the, they saw the risen Christ and then they got on with the heart of the good news. Here's Paul's entire defense of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. That's it. He didn't write books and books and books of apologetics that the tomb was empty. He didn't need to. He lived resurrection. John Donahue, he's a Christian scholar. He speaks to this when he tells a story about a time he was giving lectures on the resurrection. And someone said to him, unless you can prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead, I cannot be a Christian. To which John replied, sir, if I can prove to you Jesus rose from the dead, you should not be a Christian. And here's what I think he was getting at. Let's say we could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's say we have the forensic evidence. We have his DNA on a piece of bread that he ate at the last meal with his disciples before crucifixion. We have matching DNA on a bread from the Emmaus Road that he ate with some disciples after resurrection. We have matching DNA on the grave clothes. We have witnesses. We have an empty tomb. Okay, great. So what have we proven? That Jesus rose from the dead. Great. You still have to believe it did what he said it did. You still have to believe that it worked. That it means God has forgiven us. That it means God loves us. That it means God has freed the world from the chains of evil and death. Sometimes that's a really hard thing to believe, isn't it? Seems this world we live in is full of death and evil. You still have to believe that it all means God loves us always and forever. And that requires faith. And that's what the journey of faith is all about. And that's why God is not bothered by doubt and questions. And he is very doubt.
tolerant. See, therein lies the promise of the blessing to those who believe in the mystery without seeing. Many people believe God exists. The majority of people in the world are religious, even atheists. It's just a different God, that's all. See, from the beginning of time, we've been religious. We've always thought we've had to appease our God, whoever our God is. And so early on, we would take our babies and sacrifice them and village virgins we'd throw into the volcano. We've become more sophisticated. We don't necessarily do that anymore, perhaps. But we certainly never stop trying to appease God, do we? Hoping, hoping we'll just make him happy enough to love us. Just hoping. The whole world is religious. The whole world is sacrificing to some God or other that they hope will make it rain when there's drought and will bless our activities. But see, it's the mystery of that Christ reveals that changes everything. Sadly, even certain Christian doctrines and theologians of the cross and theologies of the cross that have developed over the last 500 years or so have encouraged that way of thinking. See, Paul wrote about reconciliation. And so certain theologians, not from the early church, turned that into a doctrine that is now mostly understood this way. That God hates us, or at least is incredibly angry at us, but now that Christ has died, he's willing to at least consider the idea of loving us if we say or do the right thing. It's one more appeasing of the angry God. And I'm sorry if that's the reason that you don't do church or faith or doubt or question. Because here's the thing. That's not what Paul, I don't believe that's what Paul is talking about at all. And none of the early church fathers did either. See, here's Augustine. He's from the early church. Let not the fact then of our having been reconciled to God through the death of his son be so listened to or understood, and as I point my own fingers at me, or taught as if the Son reconciled us unto him in such a way that he now began to love those whom he formerly hated, as enemy is reconciled to enemy, so that no, on, no, on that account they become friends and mutual love takes the place of mutual hatred. No. 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 We were reconciled unto him who already loved us, but with whom we were at enmity because of our sin. Yes, reconciliation is a vital part of redemption. Necessary. That is why Paul wrote about it. But it's we who have to be reconciled. We who have to change our minds about God. God does not have to change his minds about us. He loves us all as we are not as we should be. Oh. And that is what the cross and resurrection are for. To change our minds. Change our minds about God. <clears throat> to help us believe even with all our doubts.
that Jesus is God. You see, if Jesus is God, the Jesus of this Bible, not some political, hypocritical, or morality poster boy that gets held up right now as God, not him, but if Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible that you have to read to know, is God, then that is good news, it's great news, and it's something worth believing even if we don't see him. Because that means God loves us so much that it doesn't mean matter what we've done or what we will do, he will never stop loving us. He proved that by dying for us. This is why I'm so sorry if you have been told God hates you. Long before you ever knew there was a God, he died for you. Why, why would he have to change his mind about you then? And by rising from the dead, he proved that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how horrible life may become, no matter even if we die, that's not the end of the story. Life is. Resurrection means light banishes darkness. Love is forever. Life wins. And that is the story of Easter. Resurrection comes because resurrection has always come. Because the same lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world has always been the Savior that was risen from the foundations of the world. Easter Sunday has always been victorious over Crucifixion Friday. So, let's have our doubts. Let's have our questions. Let's all be Thomas. For just as Jesus came to him in all his doubts, I am certain he will come to us in ours. And when he does, we will hear what St. John himself heard. A loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This, this is the blessing for those who believe even in their doubts. That is enough, I think, to make us all join Thomas and say, my Lord and my God.